Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast. Today, once again, Miriam is joining me to talk about um, the life cycle of a trend or the anatomy of a trend. We're going to take a look at um, how audience segmentation interplays with the different sources of trends and why it's important to keep a lookout for those things. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me once again. My pleasure. So today we want to talk about audience segmentation and we want to take a look at a few specific trends and kind of study um, how they performed, how they interact with one another. So where should we begin? I think we should begin with uh, just talking about a little bit more in depth what a trend actually is. Um, I think we often hear, you know, X ingredient or dish is trending, but what does that actually mean? Um, what is the kind of the lifespan of a trend? At what point in that lifespan is it most relevant or useful for, let's say, product innovators to tap into it? Um, so what is, I think that's an interesting question to start with. What exactly is a trend? Yeah, so um, a good place for us to start is to talk about what is uh, a trend or how we define a trend. Because like you say, um, that uh, very often we would say that this thing is trending or this thing is 20% up. And, um, you know, we, we don't always talk about like, what is that compared to? Um, what is our kind of like pool for, for reference? You touched on this a little bit, I think, last week and also on the um, uh, workshop that, uh, that we did. But I think it would be great to get a breakdown of like, how do you define a trend? How do you look at it? Sure, yeah. So I think the number one most important thing to remember for trends um, is that context really matters. Um, a trend is only a trend if it's you know in comparison or in context with something else. You know, an ingredient could be rising, let's say, a hundred percent in interest year over year, but unless you understand whether that's you know expected, unexpected, um, the drivers behind that trend, that's not really useful information, right? It's just a number. Um, so I think one is understanding context and understanding what is going on around the trend. To to really understand um, if it's meaningful. The second most important thing, I think, is to acknowledge that no trend is exactly the same. So there are lots of different kinds of trends. There are seasonal trends. Um, there are trends that are related to um, specific events, let's say, in the calendar. I think a great example of that is, is the pandemic. And we all you know, have seen trends that emerged because of that. Um, there are, as we like to say, flash in the pit flash in the pan trends, which, um, you know, something that trends for a moment in time and then fizzles out, which I would argue perhaps isn't necessarily a trend, but, um, you know, it's more of a fad. I think that's, uh, probably the, the lesser, the little sister version of a trend. Um, but I think broadly a trend is something that, uh, or an ingredient or a dish or, or a claim, even a motivation, something that experiences, um, steady growth. And I don't mean necessarily, you know, the same growth over time. There can be peaks and valleys uh, in any trend, but something that experiences um, some version of growth over time um, and reaches a threshold of establishment. So something that is um, established in the, the behaviors of consumers and continues to change and grow and morph over time. Yeah. I mean, I think that examples for things that are, are seasonal. Um, so recently we looked at pumpkin beer which obviously is going to be more popular around October, around Halloween, or we looked at um, diets like keto, that's usually going to be more popular around uh, like New Year's resolution time, like uh, around January. Um, but even if a trend is seasonal, do you find that it's typically tied to the same motivations that drive it? Or, uh, or do you see those changes? Like, for example, if we take like a diet like keto, for example, um, we know that there's going to be a spike in mentions for it and interest for it around January. Um, but I think that the 
the cause for it, or at least the, the consumer motivations for it might be different from year to year, depending on just the like general sentiment of the population. Sure. Yeah. I think um, one of the really cool things about understanding motivations over the course of time is recognizing, again, they're contextual, right? So um, somebody could be really drawn or a group of people, an audience could be really drawn to keto in January because they're trying to stick to New Year's resolutions or trying to get healthy. Um, in the summer months, they might be wanting to, to be more fit. Um, there might be further down the road, you know, research that comes out that keto, I'm making this up here, but keto is, you know, deeply linked, let's say to heart health or something like that. And so a different age group could be really, you know, interested in that in a certain time. So for sure, I think one of the, the ways that we can gauge the stickiness of a trend or the longevity of a trend or what we can expect from a trend is seeing how well it adapts to um, different kinds of either seasonal or not, but pressures from the outside. So recently on one of our TasteWise Live events, so every week we do this event, TasteWise Live, where it's essentially just a research session um, where we use our platform to kind of dive into the um, uh, to a trend, essentially. And someone asked, um, I don't remember what we were going into. I think it was the coffee episode um, where someone asked, how do I know that this is not just a, a fad, right? Um, and I don't believe I had a really good answer to that. So do you have a way of when you're looking at the performance of um, these um, concepts, essentially, to say, okay, if this is something that just kind of like spikes and then goes down, or if there's something that kind of like slingshots into the mainstream or um, that uh, that you differentiate, like, trends and fads? Sure. Um, that's a really great question. And I think that's kind of the million dollar answer, right? If we can predict what's going to be happening in any trend in the future and be 100% confident in that answer, you know, a lot of questions would be solved in our, in our industry. Um, but I think one of the exciting challenges about trend analysis is that the market is always changing, right? No one in 2019 would have anticipated, or at least you know, the average Joe would not have anticipated um, COVID to hit, right? And everything changed. Um, so I think the first thing to acknowledge is that trends are always um, susceptible to, to changes in the market. But I think uh, the difference between a fad and a trend is, is an interesting question. For me, what I tend to look for is just sheer time. So seeing how something is performing um, over the course of time and if it's continuing to show resilience and growth um, through the kind of peaks and valleys, right? So if I see something that, um, and this is an example we'll get to a little later on, on the podcast, um, but if I see, for example, hard seltzer peaks in the summer and then declines again, I'm not going to necessarily assume that's a fad. I might say, okay, you know, what are the external factors here? Is it seasonal? Um, you know, what's going on? What I care about is seeing the next summer, you know, is it continuing to grow yeah. um, or is it stagnant kind of at the same level where it is? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, Another way that, that we analyze trends here at TasteWise, um, so in our platform where we have the ability of looking at two-year over the course of time uh, performance for trends. Um, and so, again, that that question of resilience. So, you know, in the market has, for example, in the pandemic, I, I don't want to go back to this too much because I think we're, um, we're all a little bit tired of hearing about the pandemic, but I do think it, it gives us a really interesting use case. Um, if we see, for example, that a trend emerged during the pandemic um, to fit, to answer consumer questions or consumer needs, consumer demands, right? I think health is a really great example, immunity, something like that. Um, those were trends that were around before, but found new heights during the pandemic. If they're able to kind of subsist throughout the pandemic, um, and, you know, might hit a downward curve a little bit later on. But if they're able to stabilize at a rate that's higher than before, then that's a signal that whatever consumer motivations bolstered that trend in the first place are here to stay. And I think that's a really great, um, great it is, way. 
it is really interesting to me how much because um, we do a lot of work with like trying to predict trends and trying to understand um, what what bets can companies make right now on their products. And some companies want to make a bet that is uh, maybe safer and more sustainable for the long run. So maybe they'll make the bet on an existing product that has steady growth or maybe uh, maybe is just not declining while other companies are going to uh, try to do something that is very bold to maybe um, capture the market. And um, it is uh, it is really interesting how like uh, dealing with the stock market, because when you're looking at stocks and when you're evaluating stocks and where do you want to invest your money um, and you're looking at like value stocks versus growth stocks and you're looking at like dividend stocks versus, um, you know, stocks that don't pay out dividends and you're trying to like think about do I understand this business? Does it have a good trajectory? Um, do I think that this is just going to be a steady thing that keeps growing? Is this um, like, uh, you know, they say that a lot of um, healthcare companies like Johnson & Johnson, for example, they say they're, they're kind of like recession proof. Mm -hmm. So there are some trends that are going to withstand a pandemic. Yeah. Um, that goes so, back to that idea of resilience also, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really, I think it's uh, really interesting. I want to pull something out of that that I that I think is is a really good point. Um, so when we're talking about food and beverage trends and we're thinking about, uh, you know, risk versus uh, kind of the safe bet or the safe play, um, it has a lot to do with growth, but it also has a lot to do with establishment. So is this something that we're seeing is really, the language used is really well penetrated in the market already and experiencing growth? Because um, we, we, in our trend research, tend to delineate between, um, you know, emerging trends and established trends. And there's a lot of different levels in there, but speaking broadly. Um, and if we look at an emerging trend, this is something that may not be well established in the market. So a lot of people may not be familiar with it yet, but it is gaining traction among those that, that are engaging with it versus an established trend is something that, you know, everybody knows about and, and is continuing to growing. So that, that would be the more safe bet, right. For a brand to kind of bank on. Um, but the more risky bet and perhaps more, you know, let's say lucrative, bet could potentially be something emerging. So there's value in, in both of those types of trends. Yeah, and it also depends on what your company makes. For sure, right? I mean, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, what products you have out there? So I want to talk about as just a, a kind of like a last bit of um, of uh, level setting. Um, I want to talk about audience segmentation. Um, so if you can walk us through how we segment audience, how you look at it, um, and then maybe go into um, how that affects the the actual different trends. So I think um, I think you can start by kind of like defining um, an audience and then talk a little bit about why it's important to to look at like the different trends through the lens of the audience. And if you have some great examples for that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so audience segmentation is, is a really big deal when thinking about trend research. So much of what is at the core of trend research is the why or the motivation. We talk about this a lot um, on previous podcast episodes. Um, basically, any event that you come to at TasteRise, we're always talking about the why behind consumer decisions. Um, and of course, the why will change based on the audience. Um, so at TasteRise, we in our platform, our AI is able to identify different groups of people. Um, I'm not going to go hugely into the tech side of things now. Maybe we can do a, you know, a different podcast on that. But um, our AI is able to um, evaluate the behaviors of different types of consumers across social media, um, group them together, and then extrapolate uh, from that behavior outward to create a, a larger segment. So essentially what that means is um, through the behavior on uh, through kind of social behavior um, online, which is, as we know, an incredible place for right now for food and beverage 
um, content people are sharing all the time. So it's a, it's a really kind of a uh, rich space for understanding consumer behavior um, and actual consumer behavior, not just reported consumer behavior. Having access to um, those kind of audiences is like having, you know, a focus group of millions of people. So it's a, it's a really valuable tool. Um, and the way that we understand audiences ranges everything from um, affinity groups, let's say, um, to so, you know, everything from based on interests, like let's say uh, techies or yeah. occupations like or how people spend their time like students um to other types of characteristics like moms dads uh, all the way through to gender all the way through to uh generations so gen x gen z millennials baby boomers you name it so we we kind of look at this holistic picture because we recognize that age gender identity activity job all of those things influence how people make decisions about food and beverage um and oftentimes in the case, I think moms is a great example of this or moms or dads or parents. Um, the way that people are, are choosing to consume, um, is also influenced by the people they are also taking care of or the people that they're around. So, um, it's really valuable to kind of have your finger on the pulse of all of those. Yeah. So, um, do you have an example of trends that perform differently with different audiences? Like for example, Gen Z versus, um, millennials or yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one that I want to talk about today uh, is hard seltzer, um, which is I think we've, we've mentioned a little bit before, but it's a really interesting trend right now, especially as we're deep in the summer months. I know here in Tel Aviv, it's about a billion degrees <laughs> outside. Um, and I know, you know, worldwide, there's been a lot of heat waves. So not to, to minimize that at all, but it makes hard seltzer quite relevant right now. It's a refreshing drink. Um, so if we look, I, I took the, the liberty of kind of evaluating this trend um, from a range of different audiences. So um, specifically, I looked at affinity groups like beer lovers, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Um, vegan, which is more of a, you know, a diet or a lifestyle choice. Um, millennial, which is a, a obviously an age group. And then social media generally. So looking at kind of the general average of food and beverage. Um, and the way that we see this trend perform is actually really interesting, and especially vis-a-vis -vis menu mentions when we look at that as well. So that's another part of our, our data sets. Um, we look at social media. We look at um, recipes, which we're not going to necessarily touch on right now. Hard seltzer is a little bit more complicated because it's mostly a product. It's not necessarily a homemade something. Um, and we look at, what am I missing? Menus, of course, right, menus. Um, so if we look at how hard seltzer has been performing over the last two years, uh, this goes back to that seasonality that we were talking about before. Um, so the first kind of significant moment of establishment, um, which we referenced before, right, came in the summer of 2019. So summer of 2019, we are starting to see a little bit of movement. Um, the first groups to actually show that were um, among millennials, um, but there's not so much of a difference there between the different audiences. I think people were starting to try it out, seeing what was going on. Makes sense that millennials would be a little bit at the forefront there um, in 2019. Uh, you know, a relatively young, mobile um, group of people who, you know, going out, trying things. And we're seeing also in menu mentions um, a little bit, a little bit of growth. It's established, but like not, not growing particularly um yeah, meaning much. people were talking about it, but uh, menus like restaurants were not yet offering it on exactly. like, at the same scale. Right. There was no difference between, let's say, uh, you know, late winter, spring of 2019 and late summer, fall of 2019 on menu mentions. Menu mentions were, were pretty stagnant in terms of growth, but we were starting to see this kind of seasonal uh, spike for um 
for millennials and, and but for social audiences generally, uh, millennials tended to be a little bit higher than the than the average social. Um, and vegans, interestingly, were pretty low in penetration until July um, of 2019, when all of a sudden they shot up something like, um, I'll do the math quickly in my head, something like 300% interest. So something happened in July of 2019 where vegans all of a sudden jumped on board and started to kind of guide the development of this trend. And we see that the, the vegan interest in hard seltzer remained at a higher level than um, millennials, beer lovers, and general social this was kind pre of conversations pre pandemic. Exactly. Um, remained higher. And even throughout the pandemic, um, at the highest amount of interest that millennials, um, beer lovers or, uh, general social media showed, uh, vegan was, was right up there with them. So vegan has always kind of been at the, the top end of this trend, which is interesting, right? Cause you know, most, I would say alcoholic beverages with the exception of maybe some, some gourmet cocktails, but most alcoholic beverages are indeed vegan. So it is interesting that there's this, this kind of huge so focus. Do you find that there's like any sort of overlap between the different audiences? Like, um, for example, you had a, you have a hard seltzer product, so you should position it as um, like a, ve a vegan option for millennials or do you find those are separate? That's a great question. Um, and I think would take a little bit more analysis. Um, I think a, a pretty large segment, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a pretty large segment of millennials do identify as vegan. We know that vegan is the number one most established diet in the U.S. generally, but millennials for sure, um, that, that's pretty well associated there. I would say that that's a pretty safe bet. But um, when we kind of parse apart millennials and vegans, which of course have some overlap, but I think are useful categories in and of themselves, um, we see that vegan interest is, is much higher than, than millennial. Um, however, when we look at beer lovers, um, so beer lover growth again in 2019 summer, a little bit of a, you know, of an interest there. Um, when we get to 2020, however, huge spike. Um, and this is true for all audiences for, for millennials, for vegans, for beer lovers. This is also true for other audiences that I, that I didn't look into specifically for this example. Um, but I think that in, in and of itself is interesting that in 2020 summer, we're deep into the pandemic, um, and folks were still looking to have this refreshing beverage um, that has a lot of social association. So if you look at the consumer motivations, regardless of, of audience, if you just look at the general averaged out motivations behind hard seltzer, we're seeing um, a lot of association with refreshment in the summer. Makes sense. We're seeing a lot of association with happy hours, with birthday parties, with, you know, these social events, the kind of experience of drinking hard seltzer. And when we think back to, you know, July of 2020, those social experiences weren't happening in the same way as they were perhaps in 2019. So it is interesting to see that there's this huge spike. Um, also food service wasn't you know, able to provide in the same way, but we are seeing that around December of 2019. So pre just right before the pandemic started, we see a huge increase in menu hard seltzer mentions. Um, so despite the fact that closures were coming, um, we don't see a dip in that that has continued to, to rise over time. So we're seeing that, um, Menus responded a little bit later to the summer boost in hard seltzers um, among hard seltzer use among consumers um, and then banked on that throughout the course of the pandemic and didn't falter, which I think is really interesting. And that was a that was a good bet because we saw that that interest in hard seltzer has continued to rise. Um, so even now, interest consumer general interest, let's say in hard seltzer um, is I don't have the numbers right in front of me right now, but it is significantly higher uh, than last summer. And then, of course, before 2019 as well. Do you think that there are any indicators in a trend like this? So obviously, this is a successful trend that was able to 
withstand and even grow during the pandemic. Sure. Um, do you feel that there are any indicators that uh, that brands can look at as they're analyzing different trends, maybe based on their own products, to try to identify trends that will be as successful, like uh, like a takeaway for them? Yeah, I think if we're looking specifically in the alcoholic beverage landscape, um, I think a big motivator for uh, hard seltzer that we're seeing is gluten-free. Um, so people are looking for alternatives to the typical beer um, consumption. And I think, uh, that's evident in the growth we're seeing among beer lovers. Um, gluten-free is a huge, you know, a huge trend and it's becoming, you know, much more established than even let's say five years ago. Yeah. Which coincides with vegan. Exactly. Which coincides with vegan, which coincides with this general consumer awareness of the intricacies of, of health and consumption. Um, so I think that that is a, is a good one to kind of put a pin in and in track. Um, I think also this social element is really interesting that, um, or even stress relief, I'd have to look at how stress relief performed, but something about um, having something accessible you can grab from the grocery store, you don't necessarily need to rely on food service, even though it's there, as we've seen, um, something that you can have at home, refreshing, something to kind of take the edge off during the summer. Um, I think all of those things underpin why this the is, trend um, is successful. This is such a great example of, um, of multiple things, right? Because if we think about like this trend beginning to end, uh, or at least across the, the timeline, <laughs> yeah, at, uh, across yeah. the timeline that uh, we've been looking at it. Um, so we're seeing again, once again, the importance of consumer motivations. So people, um, you know, obviously during the pandemic, we know that people have been drinking more. So we know that there's, the, there's been um, a certain spike there. And uh, here we're looking at people that were looking at a gluten-free alternative to kind of the quick drink that you grab out of the fridge, which is usually a beer, sure. right? Um, which kind of coincides with uh, a broader motivation, which is vegan, which we know is always rising and always extremely um, popular. Sure. Um, so we're, and then we're also seeing how post-pandemic um, menus and food service have been responding to this as well. So it's also a great example of why it's never enough to only look at one data source. For example, if you're only looking at social, then you're kind of missing out the opportunity to perhaps approach food service with a really good solution um, for, for this. And maybe your takeaway uh, from this as a brand is not necessarily, I need to get into hard seltzer, but maybe it is, I need my own gluten-free alternative for a drink, right? I mean, um, and uh, I think um, an interesting example, I don't know if it's gluten-free, but it, an interesting example of that is um, um, recently uh, Pepsi released, I think it was um, a line of non-alcoholic uh, cocktails mm. called Unmuddled. I don't. Right. I don't know if it's uh, out yet or if it's in development. But I've seen. Um, I've seen multiple publications about it. Obviously, we partner with them. So um, just amazing, amazing innovators that uh, that <laughs> we get to learn a lot from from the way that uh, they do things. And this is part of the process, like looking at um, what's driving people to a certain type of experience. Um, what's the motivation behind it? How is food service reacting to it? And is there an opportunity there? And then how should it be positioned? So for example, if we know that this thing is popular with millennials who are mm -hmm. vegan, who are beer lovers, who are looking for a gluten-free alternative, all of that uh, informs your your messaging, the actual for keywords sure. that uh, that you're going to use. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. And I think that another really, really important thing to note here, um, and I love the example that you gave of why looking at both menus and 
social media performance, um, which is a, really about a lot more than social media, right? It's it's yeah. about consumer behavior. Why having that conversation is really interesting. Um, and one of the things that it really pulls out for me is the the relevance and importance of personalization and control, especially as you know a, a the world of consumers. Um, I'm hesitant even to say post-pandemic because we're still in in the pandemic. Um, regardless of where we are, our mindsets are still are still being influenced by the pandemic. Um, so I think the example you gave of Unmodeled is a really good one because Pepsi paid attention to the fact that consumers want to be able to control and or at least have their needs and desires be reflected in the goods that they're consuming. So if somebody wants something gluten-free, they want something gluten-free. They want to be able to have it and create something and create, you know, let's say a mixed drink or, you know, be able to take it out to the back backyard, socially distant hang or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Um, and in that, I think the underlying motivation of all of that, if we're going even deeper into the matrix of, of uh, consumer motivations um, is this concept of control. So during during a, a, a moment in time where we feel perhaps like we're not so much in control, like in the pandemic, right? We're not able to, to go out to eat or we're not able to have exactly what we want. Um, brands that allow customers to feel like they have that control um, are really are are succeeding and we're, and we're seeing that continued here. Yeah. I, I think uh, another example, we have another customer that um, um, deals more with uh, canned goods um, that were that was looking at their flagship products um, and uh, they were looking at consumer motivations and they were looking at how these trends were performing and they got to the realization, um, whether with TasteWise or without, that they needed to offer a, a plant-based alternative to a lot of their uh, kind of flagship canned goods um, products, um, which... Um, um, which, of course, I mean, plant-based and alternative proteins and, and all of that, it's a massive topic, and we'll get into it in another episode. But um, uh, the way that they went about developing that was very, very similar, like the same approach. Because even if you do uh, uh, have your plant-based uh, soup, for example, uh, like the alternative to your like a meat-based kind of like meal in a can. Sure. Um, so... You could market that for sustainability. You can market that for health. You can market that for uh, vegan. You can convenience. market uh, convenience. You can market that for uh, a specific type of diet. And you need to know who specifically is going to be consuming this, who's going to be feeding their families with this. So you need to know the audience. You need to understand the experience, the way that they're going to actually be interacting with this. Um, and then what words specifically they're looking for. Right. Yeah, that's huge. And I think that extends even to content marketing where, you know, hard seltzer is a little bit more of a tricky case for if we think about recipes and how brands can leverage that. Um, but cocktail recipes for sure we're seeing. Um, and interestingly, we're actually seeing an increase in baked good recipes uh, for hard seltzer. Um, yeah. And I think exploring the motivations behind that and then explicitly calling like those. using hard seltzer in yeah, baked goods? Yeah, exactly. Or just drinking hard seltzer along <laughs> with your <laughs> croissant both. or something. <laughs> Probably both. But using um, the, the bubbliness of hard seltzer and the flavor of hard seltzer to make really kind of fluffy, delectable baked goods. Um, and so, you know, if you're able to kind of pin down why people are using hard seltzer versus something else, right. Um, and able to leverage that language in your content marketing, like a recipe, that's another great win. Easy win. Yeah. Awesome. Was there another example that you wanted to, to walk us there through? There wasn't, but I do want to just, uh, for data nerds out there, throw out a little bit of the numbers. Um, I looked at just now the rise in uh, consumer discussions or consumer interest. Um, 
and since May of 2019, um, so roughly two years ago, and I picked that because that's sort of the start of the summer. It's kind of where we are now a little bit. Um, there's been a 920% increase on average, um, since two years ago. So that's huge. Of increase um, of what? In hard seltzer, in mm. consumer discussions. Um, and if we look at the change since Miriam last is crunching year. numbers <laughs> as we're going. <laughs> Slowing down how fast I'm speaking to give myself some time. And um, if we look at the change since last summer, um, we're, you know, at the peak of last summer's interest in hard seltzer, we were, uh, we're 34% already higher than that. Um, so, so it's is, still rising. So it's still rising. Exactly. So that I think goes back to the beginning of this conversation where we're thinking about what makes a trend resilient and what makes a trend with something to watch. Here we have establishment plus trend growth. Um, I also want to, this is a crazy number for menu mentions, um, since December of 2019. So right before the pandemic, that's when I mentioned before we saw this huge spike, um, 7,277% increase. That real? That's I real. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Menu, menu mentioned growth. So when you say 7,000%, right. Like that is kind of like suspicious eye, eyebrow raising eyebrow raising for sure. Yeah. Um, because that could be, you know, maybe one menu mentioned it and then we moved to the 70, 70 right? or whatever. Right. Um, so I'm actually going to check that for us now. Yeah. Cause usually we, we would look at, um, does something actually have a significant amount of mentions? Exactly. Um, so did it rise from one to 70 or did it rise from thousands and thousands to exactly. hundreds of thousands? And that's what I mean by establishment, right? Because we're not uh, flash in the pan trends could be something that started off as if we look at Dalgona coffee, for example, right? There were a few maybe users who were experimenting with that pre, I don't even remember when that was May, 2020, let's say. And that grew to, you know, a couple thousand, but that growth itself was like huge, but we couldn't rely on it because, you know, it fizzled out. Um, but I'm seeing here that currently we have about 3,500 restaurants with hard seltzer on their menus. That's a significant amount. So today's, today's kind of penetration on restaurant menus is definitely significant. Um, I need to crunch a few more numbers and it would take me a little bit of time to see what that was like for 2019. I imagine it was much smaller, hence the large growth, but still we can't discount it. That's a huge, that's a huge growth and it is definitely well-established now. Yeah. So something you can do right now is, uh, you can head over to tastewise.io and, um, and click the get started button. Um, there's a free tool. It's not a trial. It's just a, a free product uh, that you can use in order to explore some of these trends. So you can, uh, something really interesting that you can do is um, if you're working on alcoholic beverages or really anything else, but you can use the free platform, just type in hard seltzer, um, take a look at the results, take a look at the performance. Um, we also have um, a free uh, PowerPoint template that you can use in order to kind of build a trend report if you want to show it to uh, to your team and kind of like walk them through the trend. Um, you can export a lot of those graphs. So um, really interesting exercise. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be hard seltzer. Whatever it is that your category is, you know, vegan snacks or uh, whatever it uh, might be. I always go back to vegan, vegan snacks. snacks. I don't know and why. you can combine whatever you want. That's a great example, right? It's yeah. not just one thing that you can research. You could, if you wanted to, you could look at, you know, vegan, gluten-free, hard seltzer, muffins or whatever. If we're thinking about that baked goods, you can look as, as in depth as you want at something. Um, and one of the cool things about spotlight is that it helps you look at trend performance, like we've been talking about, but also lets you dive more deeply into the, uh, the why, which we were just talking about. Yeah. So something, um, that uh, we want to do specifically for our podcast listeners, um, is that if you do use our free edition, um, so our free tool, uh, it's called Spotlight. You can get it on uh, on our website. Um, and if you want to actually download the reports, that is typically a, a premium feature. But 
Um, if, uh, if you want to be able to download for at least a few days a few of the, the queries, absolutely no problem. Just reach out to us at live at tastewise.io. Uh, let us know that uh, you want to get download access and uh, we'll enable that for you for a few days so you can get some downloads in, um, no problem. Miriam, what is uh, the most uh, interesting recipe that you uh, either plan on making soon or have made recently? Holy moly, what a question. Um, I've been really wanting to experiment with Oaxacan cheese, yeah. um, which I had when I was in Oaxaca, fell deeply in love with. Um, and I recently saw it in a grocery store here in, in Israel? Israel, which is shocking because that is a long way for Oaxaca cheese to go. <laughs> um, so I've been wanting to experiment with um, with tacos, I think, with Oaxaca cheese. That's interesting. I don't know how how crazy that is, but... I'm excited about it. No, that's interesting. Um, for, what about you? I really want to get back to experimenting with cocktails because I yeah. haven't done it for, for a long time. But actually, I think the most, it, it's super basic, but like the most uh, fun I've had uh, preparing a recipe uh, recently was with the cakes that we made for my daughter's mm. uh, birthday party. Because each of them, because I have, I have twin girls um, and I cannot go 30 minutes without talking about them. So here you go. It's worth it. They're cute. Yeah. <laughs> so, but each of them wanted a different cake. One wanted a rainbow cake and the other wanted a flower cake, but both had to have unicorns. So, um, yeah, we had to come consumer up with motivations consumer motivations. Yeah. It's like you see the unicorn is really <laughs> trending in consumer motivations this time of year. Um, yeah, but, uh, it was a, a super, Kind of basic cake that uh, that we made, but we got a little fancy with um, like cutting the cake in half and putting like cream in the middle, and then like doing all of the Ooh, decorations. Up. And you made it one cake with different layers per so their preference, or it two was actually cake? three cakes because the one, Ooh. the first one wasn't um, like tall enough, according to to my wife. Um, but uh, but then it was just used as kind of like. Um, I, I like we used like we Frankenstein pieces of the third cake into the I other love two that. cakes. I actually um, just looked it up and rainbow colored food and beverage is growing around three percent on average month over month. Oh, over that's the awesome. Last I wonder if if we have anywhere that we can do like show notes or something or upload stuff. I will upload pictures. Please of Please do. Cakes. And um, unicorn sadly run is down. Unicorn minus 0.5 percent. So pretty stagnant, but a little bit. The little state bit of the world. The state of the world. Um, so we're, we're going to wrap it up. But I just want to mention that um, on this podcast, typically what we do is most of the time, Miriam and I talk about um, what's trending right now and our methodologies for, for research and uh, some takeaways that you can use right now and, um, and some of the free tools that, uh, that we have out there for that. Um, and we also do really interesting interviews with people from the industry. We did one with um, Enough Geffen from Unilever, executive chef. We did one with um, Rachel Weinberg from, uh, from Freshly, head of uh, Meal Innovation. And we have a few other great ones lined up um, for, for the near future. But if there's something specific that you'd like us to cover, that you'd like us to talk about or really dig into, um, so feel free to just send us an email, live at tastewise.io, and uh, we'll... Uh, we'll definitely dig into that and feel free to also visit our website tasteless.io for either the uh, free edition that I mentioned or just a bunch of free resources like uh, reports or our weekly research session that uh, that we do uh, really all all geared to, to just create um, 
to democratize some of this uh, data that's just out there. For sure. And also, if you're um, a LinkedIn user or on Facebook, feel free to connect with us. We have a lot of uh, cool insights that we send out all the time and, you know, kind of first look access to our resources. So join us over there as well. Would it be inappropriate for me to post the pictures of my daughter's birthday cakes on our LinkedIn page? That would not be inappropriate, Ron. That's a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for walking us through it, Miriam. Of course. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.